as we've been studying through the book of Proverbs, this particular month, uh, I'm sorry, this particular week, the assignment um, in, involved this particular verse. And so as we were reading this verse, on the plan was to preach on justice uh, from the Proverbs, the idea of justice. Uh, but I got up to the line of scrimmage like Peyton Manning, and I looked around and I called an audible because I didn't like the coverage and I decided to go with a different play. I know I'm, football metaphors don't work always, but here, here's, the, uh, here's what happened. So I'm reading through chapter 27, um, and, and bear in mind, next week we're going to be looking at Proverbs 31, Proverbs 31, woman, etc. And so I got up, and uh, Proverbs 27, 20, second half says, never satisfied are the eyes of men. I mean, it's so many theological truths in such a small amount of words, never satisfied are the eyes of men. As a matter of fact, above it, it says Sheol and Abaddon. This is like describing hell. Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied. Hell is never satisfied with the uh, number of souls it wishes to pull into it and destroy. And in the same manner of the voracious kind of evil consumption that would be present there in the same way, men, not walking by the spirit, but by the flesh, will have a voracious evil consumption with their eyes that will never be satisfied. And so I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to, I want to address primarily men, uh, but you'll notice throughout the entire sermon, there's lots, lots of application and even direct speech towards women. Um, so today uh, will be a sermon directly towards men. Next week will be towards women. Um, but that's, that's kind of the, 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 the springboard verse that we're going to use Never satisfied are the eyes of men. And we're going to pick it up, actually, in full context and understand it in Proverbs chapter 6 and 7. So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word that you've given to us. I pray for us now that as we look at your word, that you would, uh, you would come now and superintend these moments. This concept, this teaching, this idea is massive, not just for people that aren't believers, but for believers. And so I pray that you give me wisdom. I pray that you give me the right temperament. I pray that you would speak not just through me, but to me, to us all, and that we would, would deeply desire to honor you in this, in this realm. We love you, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I don't know if you heard this story in, in the news this past week, but it highlights, for me, um, the kind of progressive nature that one bad decision can turn into just an absolute uh, horrific kind of scene. So I don't know if you heard this, but there was a woman this past week that was driving, and she saw a spider literally on her while she's driving. Now, for, for those that are you arachnophobia people, that's a moment of freak out, right? And for her, it is no different. So here... Here's the progressive nature. A woman's driving and she sees a spider on her. What does she do? She literally jumps out of her car, uh, moving. She leaves it moving. So she leaves, she jumps out of the car and it's just going, now it's rolling. You're thinking, okay, that's bad, but it's going to stop. Well, progressively worse. The woman who scared of spiders that jumped out left her own child in the car. That's moving. So it's rolling to make things worse. Nine-year-old child decides what they're going to do is climb out of the back seat, unbuckle themselves, climb into the front seat, and stop the car. Okay, 
The nine-year-old child gets down there and tries to stop it, slams on the accelerator instead of the brake, takes off, right? One bad decision, progressively moving into an absolute disaster. As they slam on the accelerator instead of the brake, takes off, the car rams another car. <laughs> so there's a wreck. It's not like it just kind of runs off into a ditch or slows to a slow roll, runs into another car. You're thinking terrible, it gets worse. It's a child school bus full of children. One bad decision, progressively, progressively, progressively gets worse and worse. Now, everybody ended up being okay. That's not part of the story. But everybody does end up being okay. I know you're like, what happened? And if I didn't say the whole time, you're thinking about that instead of what I'm going to say. But my point is this. Um, one moment of indecision can lead to an absolute disaster of, of areas. And so it's the same way that we're talking about here as we're talking about never satisfied of the eyes of men. One poor decision brings with it a multiplicity of horrific consequences that follow. Um, and so why, uh, let's say this, the sermon as I said, is directed primarily, primarily towards men today and it's applicable to everybody. But, but why would I pull this audible? Why would I decide to change my mind here? L- let me talk a little bit why. Um, because this is an absolute gospel issue. There's no question about it. For, for believers who trust presently in the present work of the gospel that we are declared holy and righteous, I think that it's probably in most Christians' experience in their sexuality where they will express most of their rebellion and moments of unbelief. I don't trust what you say is beautiful. I don't trust what you say is good. And in this moment, I'm going to practice rebellion and unbelief, which is an absolute gospel issue. So that's why this is absolutely important. Um, Most men and women together will replace uh, with sex and romance. They'll become idols instead of God. They'll replace God with with these things. And I think... For most Christians, ongoing, it's these kinds of issues where we sense within us, just the Holy Spirit's prompting, more than most situations, a real tangible need for forgiveness. After or before or when or when things like this have happened in our life, it's when those things happen, probably more so than most other things, where we sense, wow, I really need to be forgiven. I am massively convicted here. And so... um, especially in our day and age where we're absolutely bombarded with teachings from the culture that are lies compared to what we're going to see in the scriptures. That's why this topic is absolutely, absolutely important. So we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 6 and 7. And just to give you an idea of the layout, um, chapter 6, we're going to start at verse 20. And in 20 through 35, the first little section is Warnings against adultery, the actual adultery, um, the act. And then in chapter 7, starting in verses 6 to the end, we're going to have warnings against the adulteress, the, the woman that comes and tries to woo the man into the act of adultery. So we've got the warnings in chapter 6, and then the actual story that we see in chapter 7, which we'll see as a metaphor, um, against the actual adulteress itself. So I want to say a couple things uh, before we get started, because uh, it would be, I think it would be easy, as I've said, this is a sermon primarily towards men. I'll have some application towards women. Uh, here's warnings against adultery, and here's warnings against the, the adulteress, feminine. I think it would be easy for the women here today to think a couple things. Number one, um, 
this sermon sounds like an attack on women. That is not at all. This is a metaphor in which we'll see who the woman actually is, that it's not necessarily a woman per se at all. So women should not feel attacked here at all. Um, it's, not, it's not an attack on women. Conversely, men, as you read, you may say, well, this woman here is just so enticing. She's so bold and so seductive that it just gives me excuses. Let me read the text, Fud. She's all after him. If that's, if that's the bold nature of the attack that's coming, well, I've got a good excuse. I mean, I, I just feel like, I, who can withstand this? That's not the point of the proverb either. The point of the proverb is absolutely not an attack on women, nor is it, men, you have an excuse. L- let me go back to the first one. Here's the last thing, note I want to say. The proverbs, I would say, are actually very pro-woman slash wife. Um, the writer of the proverb, you got to remember, this was written thousands of years ago. Um, this is what he says about women. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness to his bones. So a great wife is awesome. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains grace or favor from the Lord. So he who finds a wife is actually receiving grace upon grace from the Lord. Women, you are grace upon grace to to your husband. House and wealth are inherited from fathers and a prudent wife is from the Lord. An excellent wife Who can find she is more precious than jewels? So the Bible, specifically even the Proverbs as we're looking here, is not at all, this is not at all an attack on women. And as I said, the woman that's being described, this is merely a metaphor. Um, This is is speaking towards men, but certainly has great applications uh, to to women as well. So the first thing I want you to do is look at chapter 6, verse 20. um, And we're going to read through here. And I want you to note with me that the warnings against adultery that the, the Proverbs writer chooses to use are not necessarily ethical warnings. God says you shouldn't do this. More along the lines, they're practical warnings. This is what happens if you do this. So certainly there are theolo- theological reasons why we shouldn't do it. But he actually uses practical reasons on why you shouldn't do it. Um, interestingly enough. Uh, so let's see, verse 20. We'll start getting to... Uh, last thing, I'm sorry. This is really last thing. Um, I usually put notes on the screen, and I've got several, one, two, threes, and things like that. Uh, I've got two lists, but none of that will be on the screen today because I prefer you listen. You don't need to write today. You just need to listen. I, I feel like in this kind of topic, if we write, we have a great excuse to have a, a moment of not paying attention. So no writing, unless you want to, but there won't be anything for you to write up there. <laughs> All right, verse 20. My son... Keep your father's commandments and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always and tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. So the big idea as we're seeing thus far is the Lord has given you this word and the word is a guide. The word is a great thing. The word is from the Lord. The word guides you and directs you and gives you life and protects you. It's a safe thing that you follow what he says. 23, for the commandment is a lamp, a light, and as the teaching is a light, the reproofs of discipline are the ways of life, the path to life. Conversely, we'll see what the path towards hell is at the very end, but the word is the path towards life, specifically, I would say, in the gospel. To preserve you from the evil woman, again, not saying, like, women are evil. It's just saying, in this particular story, the temptress who personifies Satan the word will, pre- will preserve you. And watch this. Notice the language here. This will be in the next chapter. From the smooth tongue 
of the adulteress. Let not your desire, let not desire, I'm sorry, do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes for the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Verse 27 is the first warning we'll see. Let, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be, be burned? And can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So the, the first kind of, we have these, these opening verses, at least six verses of, of warning or, or the greatness of the word. And then as we get, hear about how the great the word is, he, he gives us the first warning in verse 27 and 28, where he basically says, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can he walk on coals and his feet not being scorched? So the first warning about adultery is this. Adultery is absolutely foreseeable if you are toying with it. So here's a fire. If I go over and I pick up the logs and I walk around with the logs in my hands and I'm walking around, what's going to happen? Can a man carry a fire next to his chest and not be burnt? You will absolutely get burnt. So if you're toying around and playing in the fire and walking in it, then what what will be the natural consequence of toying around and playing in it? Is adultery. Adultery is an absolute foreseeable consequence or foreseeable outcome if you're toying with it. So instead, you throw down the logs, or matter of fact, you never touch the logs. If there's the fire, you stay away from the fire because that's where you get burned. And then there's no foreseeable consequence that you will walk into and toy with it. So the first warning against adultery, and it's really obvious, is don't stand next to it. Don't get close to it. We'll see that actually in the next section as well. The first warning is stay away. Stay away. There's a sermon a long time ago. I can't remember. Uh, Paul Washer was his name. 19, I don't even know when this was. Maybe it's in 2000, like four or five. Just a random sermon I was listening to once. <clears throat> and he said something along the lines of, um, there's only one woman I'll ever be alone with, and it's my wife. It doesn't matter who she is. Uh, and he, he's talking to a single person, uh, to single people, and he's like, don't you think that's wise that as a married man, I would only stay alone with just my wife and no one else? And like, yeah, that's, that's, that's wise. That's exactly what you should do. And he says along the lines of, then why wouldn't you do the same thing? If you think I'm 40 and I'm walking with the Spirit and I'm really mature, and you think that, that if I'm living that way, that's the wise thing, then why would you, 18-year-old, do something different than what I'm doing? Meaning, if you're not married, you shouldn't be alone with a woman that's not your wife. You're walking and toying with a foreseeable consequence. Now, you, you may say that's not adultery, they're not married, but I think any act outside of it, it's, it's all the same. Um, so you don't, you don't walk on top of coals. You don't hold fire next to your chest. You stay away from it. Adultery is a foreseeable consequence for those who toy with it. You can keep going and see the next consequence <clears throat> as we read. The one that goes with his neighbor's wife, uh, None who touches her will go unpunished. People who despise the thief say, uh, if he steals, will sa- to satisfy his appetite. Uh, when he says he's hungry, they won't despise that. Verse 20, 31, here's the next consequence. But if he's caught, if he's caught, he'll pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. Again, these are practical reasons to not, to not commit adultery. The, the second one is this. Adultery you don't do it because adultery cares with it absolute inevitable pain and absolute inevitable cost. If you're caught, you will pay sevenfold. 
He will give all the goods of his house. There's a high price to committing adultery. There's not a high price to getting caught to paying adultery. In adultery. There's a high price to committing adultery. I don't care if you get caught. There's a high price. Ray Ortland says this way. This is really good. Whenever, because of the high cost, because of the fact that you'll pay sevenfold, not just in your own life, but your spouse also reaps these negative consequences and down to your children and family and possibly even um, to those that are involved. Ray Ortland says this. This is great advice. This, this is how you should think when these kinds of things come up. When a wise man sees a beautiful woman, switch it, when a wise woman sees a beautiful, handsome man that's not his wife or not his husband, here is how he should think. Yes, she's beautiful. So, nothing to do with me. Beautiful and irrelevant. I'm so out of here mentally. Gone, gone, done. I I love Ray Orland. I don't know if you know him. He's a pastor up in Nashville, but he just has such a beautiful, wise way to think about this. There she is. So what? She has nothing or he has nothing to do with me because it's absolutely irrelevant to who I am and where I am. And I'm out of here mentally because adultery is a foreseeable consequence if you're toying with it and adultery cares with it. Absolute, inevitable pain and cost. But the third one's even more, um, more interesting because the third kind of thing that he says is the, the reason why you don't have adultery is because it yields for you disgrace, dishonor, and revenge and fury from the one that's been offended. That's what it yields for you. So you don't do it because lots of horrible things are going to happen to you. Look, look what it says. and It connects it to stealing. So look at verse 30 again. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry. So this kind of stealing is understandable. Let me just say, stealing's wrong. It's always wrong. He's not saying that stealing food, eh, it's fine to steal food. It's not saying that. It's saying if someone steals food, it's understandable. That kind of stealing is understandable. However, in the same respect, stealing someone's spouse in order to commit adultery is not understandable. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. That kind of stealing is not understandable. And what does it yield? The first thing is it yields is disgrace and dishonor. Wounds and dishonor he would get. And his disgrace will not be wiped away. It yields for him dishonor and disgrace. Not only that, it yields for him fury. Fury and revenge from the man or woman that, he's, that has been offended. For jealousy makes a man furious. And he will not spare when he takes revenge. So it yields for you the offended spouse understandably wanting to destroy you, to absolutely wanting to destroy you. And so as Ray Ortland finishes this kind of uh, section, he says, God wants, Christian, God wants deeply and desperately to help you walk with wisdom through this brothel of our modern world. He wants to help you walk with wisdom. And so he gives us these Proverbs. Now, that's the warnings against adultery. The next one is the warnings against the actual adulteress. And that starts in verse 6. Verse 6. And so as we're going into the the warnings of the adulteress, I want to be very clear here. I want to be very clear. We're not just talking about the narrow, narrow definition of a man being tempted by a woman for adultery. 
That's not what we're just we're talking about. There are many broad, similar streams that are equivalent to this. We're talking about men or women leering, leering at the opposite gender, um, whether it be live and in person or on a screen, whether it's known or unbeknownst by the person that's being leered at. So that in and of itself, as we know from Matthew 5, is also fitting in in the stream of thought in regard to adultery. It's not just the act. It's also, I would think, um, for women, probably, but maybe men, um, dreaming mentally about what things could be like if just this guy was different or like that guy. Or reverse, just what this marriage could be like if just this woman was different like that woman. So it's, it's not sexual in its nature but it's still i just wish my life were different because i like the way that person leads lives follows after maybe even jesus or just lives their life a certain way so it certainly can just be dreaming mentally of wanting something that's someone else's and and i would just say this the adulteress uh can also just address this general lack of living an unguarded life when it comes to our sexuality. Just a general lack of living an unguarded life. So the adulteress is addressing all these things, not just what this narrow definition of what we would have said in chapter 6 of just adultery per se. So let's notice in verse 6, we say, For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple I have perceived among the youths. There he is. There's this young man lacking sense. So we already know that um, this young man who lacks sense, and most young men do lack sense. It's just the, the, the best illustration is uh, young men giving independence, and you can see uh, he's passing along the corner, he's taking the road to her house. What are you doing walking near that road? Why are you walking by the fire? <laughs> Go to the other roads. There's lots of roads in this city. What are you doing at that road? And what time of night are you doing it? At, at noon with people with you? No. Twilight, the evening, the times of night and darkness. You're walking in the night, you're going to live in the night. You're going to walk in the darkness, you're going to live in the darkness. And so we see just this, this youthful independence that's ignorant. Just let me, this is a classic illustration most people use. I want you to think about this practically. Maybe in your own life this is a great uh, illustration, but at least if you just kind of think broad about the country, it's certainly true. How much does one really, really mature when they're 18 and they're a senior in high school and it's May until August of their freshman year. Really, how much do they mature? I would submit very, very little. <laughs> I mean, you have literally your last summer where most of them go crazy. And then all of a sudden, what we do in America, for most of them who go out of the city, is we give them more independence. Go to another college out of this complete city where your parents aren't over you at all and have all kinds of freedom. Now, I'm not legalistically saying you can't send your kids off to college. Not what I'm saying. I'm just, notice the independent, what happens. I can go to Waffle House at 2 a.m. and my parents will never say no. Or I can go do a whole lot of other things. And what happens the freshman fall? They don't call it the freshman 15 for nothing, right? You do a whole lot of poor decision making. And generally after that fall, perhaps a lot of maturity happens. Oh my gosh, I just made a massive amount of stakes this particular fall because I was given independence when I wasn't ready for it. And so that, that's the general idea that we're talking about here. A young man lacking sense, walking on the roads that he shouldn't be, walking out at night when he shouldn't be, etc. Just irresponsibility. 
And what, what happens? What are the warnings then that we're going to see about the adulteress? And behold, so here we're going to see um, and this particular warning about the adulteress is this. this. This particular adulteress here, the first warning is this. Your enemy, the adulteress, is everywhere. She's not just on one particular road. She's literally on every road. And she's very bold. There's no timidity about this woman. She's very bold. Not only is she bold, she's very crafty. The, the Bible is going to say wily. Uh, so we're not saying like crafty like she's good at art. We're saying crafty like she's sneaky. She's very wily. And not only that, she's very seductive. She is bold, crafty, and seductive. Her words are going to be very difficult to say no to because she's everywhere. And now we're starting to understand. So let's look at how bold and crafty and seductive and everywhere she is. And behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. Notice her personality. She's loud. She's wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market. And here it is. And at every corner, she lies in wait. Women, it is physically impossible for you to be literally at every corner, right? You can't literally be at every road. So what we're seeing here is that there's supernatural descriptions about this woman. This, this is actually not a story. It's more of a metaphor. She's literally everywhere. And she's wily of heart. She's crafty. These are the exact same words describing Satan in Genesis chapter 3. So what we're not saying is, women, you equal G- Satan. That's not what we're saying. Instead, we're saying this particular adulteress in this story is actually not a woman whatsoever. This, it's a metaphor because she's everywhere and wily. That, that's the words used by by Satan, about Satan in Genesis 3. So this woman is a representation of the devil himself. So it's not about women. Instead, it's for all of us warning us against Satan. So Satan is everywhere. Satan is bold. Satan is crafty. Satan is seductive. He speaks words to every single one of you, regardless of gender, and they are very difficult to say no to because he knows exactly how to say it. And he's quite bold. And he's far smarter than us. And so that's who this woman is. It doesn't just have to be about sex either. First um, John. First John chapter 2 says this. There's kind of three big sins, I think, that almost categorize all sins. It says in First John 2.16, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, that's in regard to sexual temptation, the desires of the eyes, that's materialism, and the pride and possessions, that's the issue of pride. These, these big three kind of categories, whether it be lust or whether it be materialism or whether it be pride. So it's not just talking about men, it's talking about women, and all of these three things can be things that are coming after us. And you might have great power in overcoming one, and the other two are dominating you. You might not be prideful, but humble, but materialism and lust are dominating you, or whatever. You might be not materialistic, but pride and lust are dominating you. And you can see here that this woman is quite aggressive. Verse 13 is a massive shift. So she's, she's talking to him and she's kind of walking around in the street um, looking enticing. And then all of a sudden, verse 13, you can see the aggressive nature of how Satan is. Very bold. She seizes him, kisses him with bold face. She says to him, Verse 14, I had to offer sacrifices a day. I paid my vows. We'll come back to that. And look, look at some more of the seductive speech. So now I have come to you and I, to meet you, to seek you eagerly. I have found you. And verse 15 is interesting because there's a, uh, there's a flattering nature of the words that she's saying. Men, 
are done when their egos are stroked. And this is, she's flattering him. I have come to meet you eagerly. I have found you. You're the one I want. So this is drawing him in by flattering him and stroking his ego. And then all of a sudden, you see the very seductive words that she uses uh, in 16 and following. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from the Egyptian linen. I perfume my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love all the way till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband's not at home. He's gone on a long jersey, journey. He took a money bag with him. At full moon, he'll come home. So he's gone for a long time. Everything's set up. The bed is set up. Let's go. So you can see this uh, seductive, bold, crafty words that she's using. Ray Ortland, uh, well, let, let me say a couple things, actually. In, in regard to 16 and following, she's gone to quite a lot of work to seduce him. Quite a lot of work. And don't fool yourself that this is not the design. This is the absolute design of Satan. He is going to quite a lot of work to seduce you. He's dressed it up, and he's gone to a lot of work. And conversely, if you look at verses 16 through 18, um, fleshly, worldly speaking, it looks like absolute bliss. It looks like this has got to be the best. Sin dressed up is meant to sound great. It's supposed to be seductively inviting, but it's not. It's very, very ugly. Ray Ortland says it this way. If only evil were always ugly, life would be simpler. But that's not the way it, it is. It's always dressed up to be great, to sound wonderful, and makes you think, oh, that's so great. Whenever you're missing far past that, the beauty of Christ, who unbelievably surpasses any kind of fleeting worldly sinful pleasure. As a matter of fact, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, keeping with the metaphor, says, Satan disguise himself, disguises himself as an angel of light. He knows how to dress up sinful things to look enticing. And what is she saying to him? What is she saying to him? She's saying, there's no harmful effects if you spend the night here. My husband's gone. You can stay here. Nothing's going to happen. Don't worry. Everything's fine. She's crafty. She's seductive. She's bold. And she's ruthless. She's ruthless. So for all of you, whether you're dealing with this adulteress or you're dealing with materialism or you're dealing with pride, Satan's full on coming after you. He's got a full court press against your soul. And he is bold and he is ruthless and all he wants is your destruction. That's all he wants. And he does not stop. So what's the answer? Let's look at some more. Look at what else she does. <clears throat> Notice verse 14 and 21. First, she tells him this, this lie. I had to offer sacrifices, and today I've paid my vows. So what she's saying here is there's, a, there's an intrinsic understanding within us that whenever we sin, something needs to happen to make that sin not go away. Sacrifices and vows, if those things are made, then... My sin is washed away. And so she's in this seductive speech where she boldly kisses him. She immediately tries to take God off the table because we innately know this is wrong, this is wrong. She's like, oh, don't worry about God. I've made the sacrifices. I've paid the vows. So those, those feelings of guilt that you're feeling, 
I've already done what's necessary for that. God's going to forgive anyway, right? Swipe the credit card of forgiveness. God forgives you. You're all good. Everything's fine. Don't worry. You can ask for forgiveness later. Everything's good. So she's speaking to him with lies. And you can even see in verse 21, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With what? What persuaded him? Was it the clothes she was wearing? Because we've heard kind of about that. Was it the kisses that she gave him? The final thing that actually did it, and the thing that did it, the thing that snared him, it's not the clothing, it's not the kisses, it was her speech. Make sure you listen to this, don't miss this. It's not the physical urges that normally ensnare us most. It's the lies that surround them that ensnare us. It's the lies that surround them. So the first caution about the adulteress is that she's everywhere. He, she, Satan is bold and crafty and seductive. And the next thing is this. Beware! He is a liar. He is a liar. As John 8 says, he's the father of lies. He he tells you this misunderstanding of true repentance in verse 14. Ah, I just swiped the credit card of grace. It's no big deal. You don't have to actually change the way. Repentance isn't just, I'm really sorry. Repentance is a change of life. I'm walking down this way. If I repent, I don't just say I'm forgiven and I keep walking. Repentance is I metanoia i ask for forgiveness and i literally metanoia 180 and i start going the other way my mindset has shifted and i'm no longer walking towards sin i'm walking away from sin i'm walking towards jesus what he wants so don't give me a misunderstanding a a a lying version of what true repentance looks like because she's a liar and also with much seductive speech she persuades him now praise god that he doesn't actually give us what she says. This is definitely a mature kind of sermon, but if that were there, this sermon would move into the rated R version. This is, we have no idea what she says, but with her smooth talk, she compels him. Her speech is a lie. And this smooth talk, this seductive speech is constantly coming at those that are tempted into this and they will... this smooth talk, this seductive speech will literally tell you anything you need to hear to give in. This is what's going to happen. This is how what I'm going to do. This is how it's going to work. Anything you need to hear so that you'll give in. So beware. She's bold. She's seductive. But more than that, she's a liar. Next thing that happens is this. With her seductive speech, she persuades him. She persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. So something has happened in his head that he's now persuaded and, comp- persuaded and compelled towards what, we might ask. This is the third thing that we should see. Whenever she persuades him, whenever she compels him, he now believes that what she's saying is what he should follow. His desires now are for that. So what's happened here is that she the third warning is that she begs you now to live by desires rather than by design. Her smooth talking, compelling speech is desires rule. Follow those. Not design. Don't worry about design. Design is all the seductive speech that she's saying that we can do is still for humans permissible inside of the design. 
inside of the context of marriage between a husband and wife, all of these things, that's the safe place where these things, it's a good gift from God that he desires that we would do those things. That's the safe place. And the seductress is saying, go live by desire in this moment, not by design. Go fill, fill your heart with all those things. He's being led by the wrong master. Desires instead of Jesus. And you can't live by desires. You have to live by design. God gave us desires to be lived in and submitted to within the design. Because that is the absolute safe place for us to live them out. Because that's not just, I should say more than that. It's not just the safe place to live them out. That's literally where the blessings and the gift and the beautiful acts of actually living as a worshiper of Jesus are lived out. So it's not just a, uh, it's a safe place here. It's literally the blessings of God that we live them out there. Our desires lived outside of design will lead us to destruction. But proper aimed desires within the design lead us to life. They lead us to blessing. So she begs him in this particular moment. Basically she says, It's me versus God. And I'm saying, live for me, not for God. Live for desires, not for design. And with her smooth talk and her seductive speech, she literally persuades him and compels him. And what happens? These, I mean, for for years I've read the Proverbs and it never stops. The first three words of verse 22 literally scare me to death. This is the exact, the progressive nature of things moving and moving and moving and moving. When that decision is made, all of a sudden, a lifetime of resistance can evaporate literally in one moment. All at once. All of walking with the fire close to you. All of you walking on the road that you're not supposed to. All of walking at night. All of listening to the speech. All of... Instead of face planning and walking away, listening and listening, all of the kissing, all of everything in that particular moment, all at once. What does he do? All at once he follows her. And what does this do? Like an ox to the slaughter, like a stag or deer that's caught in the noose or caught fast, like an arrow piercing its liver as a bird rushes into the snare and he does not know that it will cost him his life. She does, he does not know it'll cost him his life. And now my sons, oh sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my life. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. And we talked over here a minute ago about how the ways of the Bible in 623 lead to life. Listen to her ways. Do not stray to her paths. For many a victim she's laid low and all are slain by her mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, literally the road to hell. Her road is the road to hell. The road to life is in the word through Christ and his gospel. The road to hell is her way. And it goes down to the chambers of death. The fourth warning against the adulteress is she deadens your senses. All at once you give in. And in the end, it kills you. And it costs your life. In the end, it kills you. And it costs your life. All at once. This is why I say in verse 8, walking along the street near her corner, taking the road, Live, walking around at nighttime, this is why I say, stay as far as way as possible. What are you doing on the road at night? Because all at once, this is what's going to happen if you're doing that. What's the cost? 
The cost is literally your life. The cost is your life. Living in such violent rebellion to God, living in such mutinous opposition of the gospel, living in such revolt to Christ and his spirit within you will literally cost your life if you walk down this path continually, continually. Like an ox to the slaughter or a slag that is caught, a stag that is caught fast, an arrow pierces its liver, and a bird rushes into the snare, you do not know that it costs your life. So, it's pretty heavy. It literally is the road to hell. We have these warnings against adultery, and then we see these warnings against the adulteress, which we know is just a metaphor or personification of the devil himself. What then are we to do? Because thus far, all I've done is put out these warnings and so far made you just think, well, then it's all up to me. Did you notice that there's a second man in the story? I'm not talking about verse 19, the husband. I'm talking about the husband. I'm talking about the second man all the way back up in verse 6. Do you notice the second man? Where is he? For at the window of my house, I, it's okay, we're talking about somebody who's telling the story. I've looked out through my lattice, looking out of my window, looking out of my lattice, and I've seen among those down there, I've perceived those lacking sense. I've seen this youth, this man. So there's two men. There's the moron on the street, if you will. But there's the other man behind the window, behind the lattice, not on the street, not carrying the firewood close to his chest, safe. We ask our culture, who's the manlier man here? What are they going to say? The man down living it up. Well, in their standards, maybe. Who's the godly man? Who is the true man here? The one who understands that shielding yourself from temptation does not mean you're not a man. It means you're wise. So, again, the answer thus far still can be, okay, so my goal then is shielding myself from temptation. That's what the Lord would want. And I would agree, absolutely. If you're going to pick one of the two, be in the window or be down on the street, it's be in the window. But let's talk about why you're in the window. Let's not just say it's because I've just got good willpower because that's not what the Bible's saying here either. Why and how does, he, how does he remain in the window rather than go down to the street and why does he do it? What's the first word of verse six? For. This is because. When you see for, it means something. He's making an argument. So amazingly enough, I believe what's going on here is this. This man is finding himself wisely tucked away behind the window, behind the lattice work, shielding himself from the great temptation of adultery and the adulteress. And he's not doing it on his own willpower, but instead he's doing it because of the great gospel. I'll tell you why. Because you've got sandwiched in the middle of the warnings of adultery and the warnings of the adulteress. Sandwiched. You've got the two pieces of bread of warning. Right there, the meat of it right there is chapter 7, verses 1 through 5 which I think is the gospel. So you've got the gospel for. So 
The reason why I'm here is because of this great good news that's right there in verses 7, 1 through 5. Ray Ortland literally says, chapter 7, 1 through 5 is the Old Testament language equivalent to the New Testament language in John chapter 3 of being born again. When Nicholas comes at night and Jesus says, you got to be born again because of the gospel, because of what Christ has done, literally new life. A, a new heart is what will make you live out these things. So let's look at the the meat of seven, one through five between the two sandwiches of warnings. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. We've seen death on both sides. And I'm saying, live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. And here it is. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Now we talked about this last week, that exact phrasing written on the tablet of our heart. We saw that that's pointing to God's concern of our heart first, more than just outward actions. The Lord, of course, wants our actions to be life-giving, not death. But he doesn't want you just merely conform your outward actions to his laws. Instead, he wants your heart to want to do those things. The best illustration is this. I've had over and over and over and over and over as a pastor have interactions with guys, and I say, okay, we can get, you know, the, I can take your computer and I can throw it in the ocean, Right? I can take every electronic device you own and throw it in the, in the, in the ocean. That's not going to kill it, right? If I just remove that and all of a sudden you don't have that outward action, I can't still remove the fact that you've got to walk around on the street. So I don't need to just attack, attack actions. We don't need to just attack actions. We need to attack the heart. If you have a different heart, then whether you're using the computer or walking out on the street, things are different. And that's exactly what he's saying here. So what do we need? We need a new heart. As Jeremiah 31 is this, using the same language, he said that you're not going to have this heart of stone. You're going to be given a heart of flesh. And literally, because he's going to forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. So here, God, this great gospel meat in the middle is helping us see that God is far more concerned. We have a heart change rather than just mere outward conformity. So this man is living in protection, keeping himself shielded from temptation, as we all should be, not out of sheer willpower, but because the Lord has changed his heart. And the beauty of Christ is always far surpassable than any of these fleeting, dressed-up beauties. And all he wants is to honor Christ by living inside of the design that God's giving him. Because his heart's been changed. You can see it even more. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. So not only do we have a second man... In verse 6, we have a second woman in verse 4 and 5. And this, this gives uh, great evidence to my fact, to my previous statement, that God here in this text is not uh, anti-woman. As a matter of fact, this is pretty pro-woman. Because this second sister, this wisdom, you're my sister, is just a personification of Jesus. So we've got the, the adulterous woman who's really Satan, and here we have the woman sister who's Jesus, and we're given the choice between the two. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. So we have two women before us. One who is wisdom, the other is the adulteress. And we are being wooed by the more beautiful woman of verses four and five, of verses four and five trying to draw, five trying to draw us in, and the Proverbs writer is telling us to go towards the more beautiful woman in verse 4. Lady wisdom, not lady adultery. And again, don't forget, 
Lady adultery has many streams. It's not just the simple act. So I think it's best to read this verse from Titus so we can kind of get this big idea of what we're talking about. When we look at chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, this is what we're saying. Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared. Jesus Christ has appeared. In all of his grace and all of his glory, training us then. So as Christians, Christ's appearance, his death, burial, and resurrection, that good news of the gospel then, by living under the gospel, trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this is what we're talking about. The man's living a shielded life from temptation because the gospel that has, which we're going to see in just a second, declared him holy has also trained him then to renounce ungodliness, to live under worldly, against worldly passions, to live a self-controlled life, upright, and a godly life in this present age because his hope is in the blessed return of Christ. Notice this. Appearing of our great Savior and, and great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify himself for a people of his own possession. So Christ came, Christ died, and when that purpose, when he did, when he died for unbelievers to come become believers, what's declared of them is now, you are no longer lawless and you're also pure. So that's the transition for unbelievers to believers. You're no longer lawless, but you're now pure. And more than that, you're not just going to be declared not lawless and pure and then white knuckle it the rest of your life. Instead, because of that, based on that exact same truth now as an unbeliever to believer, for a believer until you go to eternity, the gospel that saved you is the same gospel that's going to train you now to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, live on a self-controlled, upright, godly life in this present age because you continually hope in what? Your ability to withstand temptation? No. Your continual hope is the blessed hope and appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our hope doesn't change. The same gospel that saves is the same gospel that leads us into holiness. So as we see here, what we're not after is not discipline and avoidance of rigid rules. This merely contains your actions. What the Lord is after is transformation of the heart, which changes your outward actions. It doesn't contain them. We're not trying to restrain bad behavior. Instead, the gospel changes your heart. You don't want bad behavior because you want to do God-honoring, worshipful things for Jesus. And the desire to do that comes from the grace of Christ in us. So here, the other woman is literally Jesus Christ. This is how I want to end. Um, likely, as I stated in the very beginning, this is probably the largest place where most Christians live in unbelief. I, w- I, would, I would submit to you probably temporarily. Perhaps it's ongoing. Perhaps it's a longer period of disbelief that you're acting in. But likely, it's more temporary. And if you're a believer, a true believer, the Holy Spirit convicts you enough that you're like, what am I doing? 
You're not going to have sway over me. The gospel declares that I can withstand and trains me to renounce that. I'm out of there. By the power of the Spirit, you do that, not in your own volition. But because I think this is likely something we all are still and we will always still be dealing with. This is how I want to go into our time of response. The offer for true repentance is before you. I'm not offering it. Jesus is offering it. And this is what he's saying. It's time to be real. Don't lie to yourself and say, I don't know, I got this under control. I'm fine. I don't have to do all the penance stuff. I'm just going to, I got it under control. It's just a lie. She's bold, she's seductive, and she's lying to you right now. You don't have it under control. So we're going to sing a song. Jordan's going to sing a song that I want you to listen to. It's called You're Not Guilty Anymore. I want you to listen to the words of this amazing gospel truth of Romans 8.1. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Don't miss this, okay? This is for the Christian that has metanoia, that has truly repented and is walking. You can shed enough tears to fill the ocean and still walk that way and you haven't repented. Or you can never shed a tear but turn around and change and go this way and I would submit the second has repented. Not the first. So, As Jordan sings this particular song, which is just the great news of the gospel for wretched sinners like me, and perhaps you. This is, this is the truth for all of those that are truly in repentance. And, and here's the thing. There's no reason why you can't. There's no reason why you shouldn't. I'm not trying to beg for an emotional response where everybody comes forward and we all cry. I'm not saying that. You can stay right in, your, right in your chair. I don't have to know anything because the Lord's the one who deals with the heart, not me. I'm just saying the Holy Spirit is moving right now. Then be obedient. Sit there and confess and repent and have a true turn of the mind and heart and go away from sin and towards Jesus. And let the truths and the words of these, this song right here as we hear sung to us, now what's true of me is that I'm not guilty anymore. Now what's true of me is that the Lord is forgiven. It doesn't matter what I've done. It doesn't matter how bad because the Lord forgives for those that truly repent. There is, thou for, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. However the Holy Spirit's leading, I just ask for you to be obedient. Let's pray. God, be with us now, and I just pray that we have a, we sense the Holy Spirit in this room. We sense the Holy Spirit in this room. And that we don't lie to ourselves, and we don't let the enemy lie to us and tell us that everything's fine. It's going to happen five years from now. It's no big deal. It doesn't matter anyway. I'm not hurting anybody. I got control. Listen to that. Listen to the Spirit who says, it will cost you your life. If you don't repent, come now. The gospel is far bigger and far more great than you could ever imagine. Though your sin's big, the grace and love of Christ is always bigger. You don't out God, but he does ask for repentance. Praise in Jesus' name.